morning and welcome to the Church of Blue Ridge. My name's Ted, one of the pastors. Good to have you all with us today. As Robert mentioned, we're continuing in our sermon series entitled Flourish as we go through the Sermon on the Mount. So please turn your Bibles to Matthew chapter 6. Matthew chapter 6. And today we're starting off with a quote fitting enough on the 501st anniversary of the Protestant Reformation. This quote comes from the great Martin Luther. He says, whenever the gospel is taught and people seek to live according to it, there are two terrible plagues that always arise. False preachers who corrupt the teaching and then Sir Greed who obstructs right living. This week's passage is an incredibly important passage. Typically, as I've uh, listened to some sermons, it's tacked on to the preceding passage or it's tacked on to the one that follows the Lord's Prayer where we were last week. But this passage should stand alone because it's very important. It, it acts in a way like a hinge, a hinge passage as I like to call them, that help uh, us to understand and, and conclude what preceded, but then also simultaneously prepares us for what is to follow. And, uh, and this passage is really Proverbs in the New Testament. This is wisdom literature at its finest. Of course, the entire Sermon on the Mount is wisdom literature, but it's concentrated in these five short but very rich verses here in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount. In fact, uh, the big idea, it's really not the big idea. We're gonna start things a little differently today. Right here, you'll see on the screen, this is really just a description of this passage. Uh, Today's passage is a beautifully written example of poetic wisdom that masterfully summarizes all that has come before it, as I mentioned, in the sermon and simultaneously prepares the reader for what follows next. So good time to review. Good time, if you're visiting, uh, to to be caught up on what we've seen already. You guys might remember we started with the Beatitudes. They acted like a preamble to prepare us for what we were getting into, these wisdom summaries of what the righteous life looked like for the man or woman of God. And then that, and right away we get this, uh, this great visual illustration of what God is hoping, what Jesus is hoping his children will be if indeed they, they take the invitation to follow the path of God, salt and light, distinction amongst the people of the world, the point of the disciple of Jesus, to stand out and proclaim the good news of Christ. And then we, we got into uh, this, this great um, practical chapter, chapter five, helping us in our relationships with our fellow man. And we see this, this great declaration by Jesus at the beginning uh, that his children need to have a greater righteousness than that of the Pharisees. A righteousness that's not just simply skin deep for all to see, but begins in the heart and works its way outward. And then, of course, right away out of the gate, we get the two biggest sin struggles Uh, that most people are challenged by, right? Anger, lust, sexual sin. And then we get into personal relationships with honesty and loving your neighbors and really just to sum it up, uh, you know, sharing the gospel horizontally with other people. And then last week, if you weren't with us, we got to the great chapter six, the devotional righteousness. It should have been two weeks, but Hurricane Florence made it one week. We had it all crammed together. How the greater righteousness looks in our devotion to God, in prayer, in fasting, and giving. And then we saw that wonderful, beautiful excursus of the, the Lord's Prayer. And so what follows now, beginning today and then following the next two weeks, it's kind of a three-week mini-sermon series within the Sermon on the Mount, and we're calling it a Theology 
of stuff. Robert heard that title at one time, so uh, he, he told me that, and I loved it. I thought it was great. So we ripped it off like we ripped most everything off from other people, but we want to give credit. But a theology of stuff, what the greater righteousness now looks like in terms of our material possessions as those who follow Christ. And so today we're, we're looking at the central theology, the, the primary theology as we should look at the things God has blessed us with, as we look at our material wealth, as we look at money, and how that factors into the life of the disciple of Jesus Christ. And in the next two weeks, we'll look at the dangers that are most likely to face us when it comes to money, when it comes to possession. Anxiety? No one in here has probably ever struggled with anxiety, right? Yeah, look, yeah, way to go. Everyone, all of us, right? So we'll look at anxiety. So be sure to come back next week. Very practical sermon for all of us, especially living in such uncertain times. And then in two weeks, a lot of people don't connect uh, chapter 7 there, the, the passage on judgment, but it's, it's connected to all of this because that's the other danger we face as we start to look at other people's money and other people's possession. What do we typically do? We get envious and we start to judge them hypocritically. So that'll be in two weeks. But, but today, this passage asks a question. It asks the question of us, and that's the title. I put the title slide here a few slides into the introduction. Who is your master? There is no third option. There is no middle ground here. This passage cuts right to the heart. Jesus takes his finger and just draws a, a deep line in the sand, and we're either on one side or the other. And so the hope is that as we come out of this passage today, you can truly answer this question, who is your master. This week, my son uh, Silas, his memory verse at school was Hebrews 4.12, the great passage. And so as we were working on it in the car on the way to school each day, uh, I thought about this passage and I said, this is, of course, we know this passage is very popular, but really this passage summarizes what Jesus is doing in the entire Sermon on the Mount. If you replace word of God with Jesus, which is theologically correct, he is the living word of God, it works. Let's read this together. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. Let's go to the Lord one more time in prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord Jesus, Holy Spirit, we come before you thankful for this opportunity, the privilege of gathering corporately as a body, as well as those guests who you have brought in to join us today. And my prayer, and hopefully the prayer of everyone here, is that our hearts would lay open before you. We know you see them. You see them perfectly like no one else can. You know each and every heart in this room. You know those who are yours. You know those who are not yours as of now. And my prayer, Lord, our prayer, is that you would have your way with us today, whether it's those who are lost who don't even know you, whose master is their sin, their sinful heart, their flesh, or those of us who are saved who continually struggle each and every day back and forth between you and the things of these, this world. Father, help us today. Help us uh, to come through this, that we can have a flourishing life, that we could be whole and not so divided uh, by our sin and by this world. Father, be with us now. 
Pour your grace upon us. Fill us with your spirit that we can hear from you and leave here different, different than we came in because of your grace, your power, and your gospel. It's in Jesus' name that we pray these things. Amen. So in order to answer this question, who is your master, we're going to look at three questions. Uh, We're going to take this great passage, divide it in three as it naturally is, each one of these three passages asking a question. Uh, So please take this seriously as you go through. Allow your hearts to be open. Even pray to yourself, oh Lord God, help me to ask and answer these questions honestly. And you'll see the the first passage we're going to look at is chapter 6, verses 19 through 21. And this initial question that we must answer, that the text is demanding of us to answer, is this. Where is your treasure? Where is your treasure? And by the way, if you've been looking for your heart, I can tell you where you will find it. Same place I find mine, at the feet of where my treasure truly lies. That is the point of it. And, and as I mentioned, this uh, whole Sermon on the Mount, we've talked about this, but this passage especially, this is like Proverbs. This is wisdom literature. And for those of you who are familiar with Proverbs, and, and we can have a little dialogue here. It's okay in church. I think it's helpful. But just shout out, what are the, the only two types of people, categories, you can fall into in the book of Proverbs? What are they? The wise and the fool. And the same is true in this passage Today, that's the only two options. We're either wise because of the grace of God, or we are fools and in our sin. Look at this passage from Proverbs thirteen twenty. I could have could have picked several to uh, to kind of help fuel us in this direction. There, uh, Solomon writes, "Whoever walks with the wise becomes wise, but the companion of fools will suffer harm." And I'll never forget. I've shared my testimony with you before. The fall of 1995, again, I'd been reading the New Testament on my own, worked with these guys at Winn-Dixie when I was in the military, kind of a side job, and one guy, Mason, said, hey, why don't you come to church with me? And it was at that moment, I I didn't think about it this much then, but looking back, I'm so thankful that I accepted the invitation to God's path, and I've been on it ever since by his grace. I'm sure many of you have a similar story that you could share as well. So as we enter this passage, just have that in mind. The text is demanding of us to go one way or the other. It is an invitation to human flourishing by our Savior Jesus Christ. So let's read uh, verses 19 through 21 and make a few observations and applications. Jesus writes this, or says this, do not lay up for yourself treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasure in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Very simple passage to understand uh, for us and to apply. And and you see here, uh, Jesus gives two commands, one negative, one positive, what, what not to do, and then what to do. I mentioned last week, and I'll say it again, this is very similar to Paul's plan for habit change in Ephesians 4, 17 through 24, one of my favorite passages, and Jesus is doing the same thing. Take off and put on. Do not focus so much of of, of laying up for yourself treasures here in this life where they're temporal, where they're going to go away, they're going to fade away. Moth and rust and thieves, um, very literal but also symbolic for anything in life that takes away our earthly possessions or destroys it or causes it to go away. If that's where our main focus is as Christians, we're completely 
wasting our time. Uh, and, and that's the point of the passage. And we get this beautiful redirection, lay up for yourselves and treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroy. Thieves cannot steal or break in. No one can take, us from, or take them from us. Now, uh, growing up in the, in the 1980s, I don't know how many of you were, were teenagers then like me, probably not too many of you, but even some of the folks here who were adults back then, there was this stupid saying. It was like a bumper sticker, literally. It was a bumper sticker. It was on T-shirts. And even then, I remember thinking, and I wasn't a Christian then, that's, that's, that's kind of dumb. But nonetheless, maybe you will remember it. The saying went something uh, like this. He who dies with the most toys wins. Anyone remember that? That was the focus, and that is the focus of so many people. But it is foolish. It is completely foolish, as Jesus points out here. Another thing that's foolish, that some, in fact, a politician, I listened to a politician just this week who used this passage to try to say Jesus was a socialist. He was a brown-skinned immigrant socialist who, uh, who you know, thought we needed to not have any possessions or own anything. So people have misused this passage in that regard. Others have said, hey, Christians need to get rid of everything, get rid of all their money, their wealth, and go live in, on the mountain or in a monastery. And typically they'll, they'll say something like this, and oh, as you're doing that, you can just give me all your wealth. I'll take it and take good care of it, right? So this passage has been misused in many different ways. But Jesus is simply helping us as his children to understand what our primary focus should be when it comes to our possessions, when it comes to our things. Material possessions are not evil in and of themselves. It's really our heart and where our heart is and how we view them. Are they the main thing that we're driving after in life to accumulate wealth, to, to, to get to some position of power? Or do we see them, as we should, simply means to an end? so that we as God's children can be provided for as we continue his mission and even leverage the things God has blessed us for his glory, for the continuation of the gospel mission. That's what the Lord is, uh, is getting at here. That's what he's helping us to see uh, and understand. And as, uh, as one theologian put it, and this is so great, the heart cannot be in two places at once. You ever think about that? How many of you have ever said, hey, I wish I could be in two places at once? A couple weeks ago, I wanted to be at my son's football game, but I had to be in Charleston for something. I couldn't be in two places at once. And that is true of our heart as well. Our heart cannot be in two places at one time. And yet, that's what sometimes we're tempted to do as those who follow Jesus. We go back and forth between focusing on him and his glory and focusing on the things of this world. And we have to be careful uh, when it comes to that. Let's look at a few applications on this passage. Uh, the first one is this, and you'll see a list up on the screen, and these are just some, some ways for us to understand what laying up treasures in heaven looks like. And the, the place we have to start first is this. We, we need to focus on and remember each day what our treasure really is that we already have in Christ. And, and you'll see some passages there which I highly recommend you write down these are great passages for meditation, to, to read and be reminded about what true treasures belong to us, those of us who have been saved. You'll see there uh, Ephesians 1, 3 through 14, also 1 Peter uh, 1, 4 through 9, and we'll look at that other passage here in a few moments, but great passages that remind us of what really matters and what we have as Christians. And here's another slide you'll see next. This comes from William Hendrickson. He listed these, actually there were about a dozen of them, and here's seven 
these great reminders of what we have in Christ. We have a life that will never end. We have a gift that will never be lost, a hand that will never let go, a chain that will never be broken, a love that will never separate, a calling that will never be revoked, an inheritance that will never fade. If you have been born again, that's what you already have. What does this earth, what does this life truly have to offer us that we don't already have because of the grace of God? Isn't he an awesome God? What a great father uh, we have. The second way to help is giving sacrificially to the church. I learned, thankfully, early in my walk with Christ that incorporating the worship discipline of giving to the church is an incredible way to help your heart focus on what really matters. It's a discipline as well as an avenue of worship. And we've, we've said this before, uh, we're not legalistic with percentage. We're not going to look at and see. We have a financial secretary separate from our church who handles all that, thankfully. But it's the habit of giving on setting an amount uh, that, that you're, you're, you're happy with, that you feel God's given you to, to give. For some, it might be 10%. Uh, 10% might be a starting place. For others, 10% might be a goal. But giving to the church, of course it's worship, but it's even a discipline uh, to help protect us from being led astray when it comes to money. Uh, another way is, again, in addition to giving to the church, leveraging our resources uh, for the kingdom. Not just our money, but also our possessions, also our time, which I believe time is the most precious thing that we possess. Leveraging these things uh, for the kingdom of God, for, uh, for the glory. And as you study this passage, one passage you always want to go to is 1 Timothy 6. 1 Timothy 6 is a, a great chapter to study in unison with this passage in the sermon. And here's a, a little bit from that passage, 1 Timothy 6, 17 through 19. You'll see it up on the screen. Paul writes there, as for the rich, as for the rich in the present age, by the way, as Americans, this would be most of us in the country uh, in comparison to the rest of the world. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasures for themselves as a good foundation for the future, so that they may take hold of, what, of that which is truly life. And you can see here that Paul has the Sermon on, mind, uh, Sermon on the Mount in his mind as he's writing this passage. So it's great application uh, from another book of the Bible as we continue to go through here. Number four, one thing we don't think about with treasures in heaven is how these disciplines and how, as a Christian, focusing more on laying up treasures in heaven, what it does to me now, it builds and develops character in me and in you. It, it gives us honor and how our honor, which has been lost in our culture, but was very present back in the first century, our honor is a gift that gives to other people. Again, light and salt. As our character is developed by the Holy Spirit, we, we have this treasure in heaven factor that's even working in our life now to attract people to Christ, to help us to be distinct as we live. And it's those character qualities that are some of the best treasures that we have. And only the Holy Spirit can build and develop those when, when he helps us to focus, and thus we have human flourishing, the whole point of the Sermon on the Mount. And then finally, just a good, good biblical example, be like Zacchaeus. You heard uh, Robert read the passage of the rich young ruler earlier. 
Personally, I've, I've always loved to take those two men and compare them in a Bible study, kind of a meditation where you, because really they were both very wealthy, and you see one refused to repent, the other, by God's grace, did repent, to where Zacchaeus no longer focused on laying up treasures on earth, but was now ready to, to lay them in heaven and give away what he had and what he had worshipped. So a beautiful study there uh, as well. And before we, uh, we leave this section, one thing to be reminded of, we've talked about this in the sermon, but the heart, the idea of the heart in, in Jewish, this time period in the Jewish mind, the heart was the essence of the person's total being, everything. The heart represented the true person and who they really were. And that's why, uh, as we look at this last verse in, in 21, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And that's why I asked you at the beginning, if you've been looking for your heart, you'll find it at the feet of what you truly treasure. And so I ask you one more time, and I ask myself, where is your treasure? Because that's where you will find your heart. And it can only be in one of two places. The next life, God, his glory, his kingdom, the vertical or the horizontal. The things that this world is continually tempting us with and calling us to make its focus. So that's the first question let us now look at the second question, and you'll see it up on the screen. How do you see your stuff? And the word see there you'll see is in quotations. There's a reason for that. We'll, we'll get to that here in a moment. But how do you see your stuff? Even how do you see the stuff of others? We could ask that as a sub-question. So let's continue reading in the passage, verses 22 and 23. The eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness. Now, every time I've read this passage and I get to verses 22 and 23, it's like, did Matthew make a mistake? This doesn't seem like it fits here with everything else. Again, 19 through 21, it's talking about money. Verse 24 is talking about money and, and, and treasure. Where does 22 and 23 fits in? The eye? What does that have to do? So I was always kind of confused. Well, obviously, I've studied this week, and I now understand what Matthew is doing. And there, is, uh, some complex, there are some complex words in these two verses. Now, in the first century Jew, the first century Jew would have understood exactly what Matthew's talking about, what Jesus was saying here in the sermon. But for us, it needs a little bit uh, of explanation. And we need to understand this first and foremost. The eye was a very important metaphor in Jewish wisdom literature. In fact, the entire Old Testament. Uh, the eye was a metaphor for the window in between the inner man and the outer man. The eye was seen as the guide to life, the idea that you couldn't do anything in life without the eye. And so as we look at this passage, you can, you can imagine if, if the eye is healthy, it's going to be full of light. Now, isn't it easier to get around your house when the lights are on than when it's pitch black? So it's a very easy uh, metaphor to understand. So that's important. And, and really, we could say this. The eye is synonymous with the heart. We've already talked about the heart. So the eye is synonymous with the heart. So Matthew is saying the same thing in a way. He's just using a different metaphor now uh, that the Jews would have also understood, and we can understand as well. Now, there's two words in this passage also that um, really there's not an English word that fits the, the Greek word and the Jewish mindset behind the Greek word. 
Uh, and you'll see them, they're actually the, the description of the eye in both parts of the metaphor. So you'll see in, in verse 23 the word healthy. Okay, the Greek word there doesn't really mean healthy. So that's, that's not the best English word, but there really isn't one. That's the problem. And so the word there, the Greek word is actually a word that summarizes what we're chasing after in the entire Sermon on the Mount. It means, it means wholeness, wholeness as a person, singularity, that we're not so divided, but we're whole, we're one, we're singular. And uh, Jonathan Pennington, who you know is a, a theologian that we've been leaning on with the sermon series because he, he wrote probably the most fantastic commentary on the Sermon on the Mount, he defines the Greek word here as whole and generous, and he said that the, the Jew in the first century, the original audience for the sermon, would have understood that as a double meaning, whole and generous, whole and generous. Now, keep that in mind. The other word is the word bad in verse 23. Again, the negative side of the metaphor. Uh, bad also is not a good, not a good uh, translation of this Greek word. The Greek word there is better translated as evil. Very strong word, much stronger than simply bad. It's evil. And Pennington translates this as evil and greedy. All right, so we can reread the text now with a a better understanding of these words. The eye is the lamp of the body, so if your eye is whole and generous, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is evil and greedy, your whole body will be full of darkness. So now, another layer we need to add to this, because uh, evil and eye together... The evil eye, anyone ever given the evil eye or had someone, some people call it the stink eye, I don't know, but the evil eye, right? The evil eye on its own is actually another Old Testament Jewish concept, and it's actually throughout the Old Testament. I just saw it this week. After learning this, me and the kids are reading through 1 Samuel during breakfast, and uh, this is what the prophet, God speaking through the prophet, proclaimed a judgment against the priest Eli, that he had an evil eye. And so the evil eye kind of has three factors. It's always connected with money. It's, uh, it's either this, greed, envy, or stinginess. They'll be on the screen here in a moment, so uh, don't worry if you haven't written it down. But greed, evil, and stinginess, that's the evil eye. And so essentially with this metaphor, Matthew's asking, as your eye looks upon your own wealth, your own possessions, or the wealth and possessions of others, Do you look with a generous and whole eye, or do you look with a greedy, stingy, evil eye, calculating eye? Because how you look upon the wealth and money of the world, again, will determine who you really are. Matthew's saying the same exact thing that he's already said in a different way. So let's look at a few application points to help us as we continue through this uh, to understand what's going on. If you look on the screen, you'll see, uh, again, another slide with application, how great is the darkness? That's what I've entitled it. And so uh, the question is, what does the evil eye look like? So we have the evil eye of greed. I love to use other people in Scripture, if I can, to help us see this. The evil eye of greed, you can see this in Ananias and Sapphira. Remember the early church, Acts chapter 5? We went through Acts last year, and they saw people coming and giving to the church, Big possessions, land. Barnabas was one of those people that came up and gave some, sold some land, gave the money, and, and they saw an opportunity to, to make a little coin, but make it seem like they were given the full amount. Anyways, they're an example of that, that, that evil eye that's looking at, at money as an opportunity for greed. Um, in fact, let's look at, uh, turn your Bibles real quick 
to Luke chapter 12. Turn to Luke chapter 12, and we'll read the parable of the rich fool. Great passage to show not what, how not to do this, uh, a bad relationship with money, and what it looks like when someone's treasuring up in the things of this world. And so look at Luke 12, verse 13, the parable of the rich fool. Jesus writes there, or Luke writes there, someone in the crowd said to him, teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But Jesus said to him, man, who made me your judge and arbiter over you? And he said to them, take care and be on your guard against all covetedness. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And he told them a parable saying, the land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, what shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and all my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, fool, this night your soul is required of you. And the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. What a great passage to help us see, to kind of uh, give us an illustration, another illustration of what not to do and how, what God is calling us to be as his children in terms of our material possession. So that's the evil eye of greed. The other one would be the evil eye of stinginess, the evil eye of stinginess. Of course, I put Scrooge in there. I couldn't really think of a, maybe there's another, a good Bible character you could tell me later, but, but Scrooge is really the most dominant one in terms of stinginess. But there is a great proverb. Look on the screen at this, uh, this proverb from Proverb 23. Do not eat the bread of a man who is stingy. Do not desire his delicacy, delicacies, for he is like one who is inwardly calculating. Eat and drink, he says to you, but his heart is not with you. So there's the evil eye of stinginess. And the third one is the evil eye of envy. Of course, I think of Joseph's brothers. Remember the, the coat of many colors, and he had his father's favor. Again, parental, parental favoritism is horrible. There's one of many examples in the scriptures. And they were jealous of him, and so you know the story. Uh, another group of people, and by the way, put this down in your notes. John chapter 11 and 12 is a great place to go, kind of the second part of John 11 and chapter 12, to see uh, the negative aspect of, of people who had the evil eye. And, and one group of people in there are the Pharisees. And you see this in John 11 and John 12. The Pharisees were so jealous of Jesus because he was becoming more famous than they were. And the Sadducees had their own reasons for wanting to kill him. It had more to do with fear and anxiety. But the Pharisees were jealous. They had an evil eye towards Jesus. And they just couldn't let him continue. So uh, a great example there. And then, as you'll see on the screen here, the evil eye is the exact opposite of what God is calling his children to, singularity and wholeness. And in two weeks, we'll see and talk more about this as we get to Matthew chapter 7. So, great reminder uh, there as well. And so, again, we, we end with a question here, this second section. How do you see your stuff? How do you see the stuff of others? Are you prone to envy? Are you prone to jealousy as you look and see how God has blessed other people? And this isn't just with money or gifts or wealth. This is also with the talents God has given us. Uh, as you see men or, or, or women, as you see other women and how God has blessed them with ability and gifts, are you jealous? Are you envious? Do you tend to hate someone because they're so gifted in this one area or they're so gifted in that area? We need to learn to be content 
with who we are and with what God has given us. That's what wholeness is. That's what singularity is. When we're so worried about other people and measuring ourselves horizontally, we're divided. And it's the opposite of human flourishing, as you guys know, because that produces anxiety, produces anger, produces hate, produces depression, produces fear, and splits us right down the middle, which is where we'll go next week as we, we come to the great anxiety passage uh, in the second half of chapter Six. So good question for us as we continue. Now here, the final question, the third and final question in this beautiful verse that really summarizes the whole Sermon on the Mount and also uh, where we're at now. It, pre- it also prepares us again for next week where we're going in the future. To whom are you fully devoted? To whom am I fully devoted? This is the third question. This passage is demanding each and every one of us to answer this morning. Now how many of you uh, grew up because, and were affected by divorce and had two sets of parents or two moms or two dads. I did, and my parents were divorced when I was like one month old, so uh, I guess I was the reason. No, I'm kidding. I was not the reason. But I grew up with two moms. I moved in with my stepmom when I was seven years old, and it was great. There were good things about having a mom and a stepmom, but one of the bad things was Whenever they were in the same place, which was usually a wedding, one of my brother's weddings or one of my brother's graduating, uh, I was divided. I felt it. Like I had to please both of them. I had to spend equal time with both of them. And if I didn't, I would hear it from one of them. I'm not going to say which one. And that was hard. I remember that as a kid. I used to not look forward to family events where both my mom and stepmom would be present. Divided loyalties is a dangerous place to be. And for some in this room, whether you're a Christian or not, that's what happens when it comes to God. We feel the tug and the pull between this world and between pleasing our Father who is in heaven. So let's read this final verse of today's passage in uh, Matthew 6, 24. And this summarizes everything that we've looked at and talked about already. Jesus says there, No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Now, one thing we have to state here at the outset is uh, there's a context here that we don't have, thankfully. Praise God, there's no slavery in the United States of America anymore. But back then, in the first century, slavery was a part of the culture. So we have to understand that to understand what Jesus is talking about here when he says, two masters. If you think that through, you'll see no slave could simultaneously belong to two owners or two masters. It was impossible. It was silly. And that's what the metaphor that Jesus uses to to bring out this final point. No one can serve two masters. No one could belong to two masters at one time. As I've already said, uh, the heart cannot be in two places at one time. It can only be in one. Uh, for you will hate the one and love the other. And, and again, going back to my personal illustration, I felt that uh, trying to please both my mom and my stepmom. I began to despise the one who was putting more pressure on me uh, to give e- equal time or, or equal love or whatever it might be. I felt that. And, and you can't live there. You can't exist there. And I think, I think we can all sense that and, and feel that. The other thing we need to see here, and if you look at that final sentence, the the kind of the, the, the climatic phrase of this whole passage, you cannot serve God and money. Matthew makes a very interesting word choice when it comes to money. He could have easily used the Greek word for money, 
uh, but he doesn't. He uses an Aramaic word. Now, it's, it's transliterated in the Greek, but it's an Aramaic word that refers to a person's total wealth, really everything money can buy. And by using that word, scholars believe um, what Matthew's trying to do is make money, kind of personify money as a false god. And just like in the Old Testament, you'll see you cannot serve both God and Baal, for example, or God and Molech. That's kind of what uh, Matthew's doing here. You cannot serve God and mammon. So some translations say mammon. And the idea there is, is he's turning money again into a false god because that's what it is. And, and this is where he's drawing that climatic point. You cannot worship both. And yet how many of us fall into that soul-splitting, dividing trap of trying to do that? And Jesus would have us free. That's the whole point of this passage. He's freeing us from enslaving ourselves to the things of the world while trying simultaneously uh, to please God. It just does not work. It doesn't work at all. Look at this quote by Jonathan Pennington. I love it, where he ties this week's passage into what, what preceded it last week. He says, even as it is impossible to live for the praise of others and the praise of God, so too it is impossible to live greedily focused on money and dedicated to God. Now, this morning, I've talked a lot about being divided, right? This idea of being divided uh, between God and the things of this world, my wealth, my money, um, and then also how God's calling us to singularity, to wholeness. But here is the truth. Divided, having a divided soul is actually an illusion. It's not true, and it's not possible. We are all singularly, this very moment, sitting in this room, every one of us is singularly devoted to one thing. The question is what? Where Christians trick themselves into thinking that they can simultaneously be about pursuing and loving the things of this world and also being a good Christian, what's happened to Christians and how they've been deceived in that regard, in the Jewish Pharisees or Sadducees back then, is what happens is we fall into idolatry without even knowing it. And essentially, we create a false God or a false Jesus who doesn't exist. We can't do that. Once you take Jesus and, and turn him into a God that suits your sin and is okay with you, you, you've created a false God. You might call him Jesus. You may pray to him as God, but he doesn't exist. That's what the Pharisees, that's what the Jews did way back even before Babylonian captivity. They still called him Yahweh, but they were worshiping Baal or Molech or false gods, doing the pagan things that, that those gods did. And we can fall into that same trap. There's only one Jesus, and you can learn about him in his word. But the reality is, in our country, and even here in the South, there's so many Jesuses. Because people create them to suit their sin. And the reality is, they're singularly focused on the things of this world. The, the possessions and the treasure of the world is their true master. And the God they think they love does not exist. And Jesus is calling us away from idolatry, to love and be devoted to the one true God, the one true Jesus. Again, the, the rich young man thought he was a worshiper of God, but he wasn't. He was a worshiper of his own heart, and thus his possessions and his wealth. But Zacchaeus, by the grace of God, repented, and that day salvation came to his house, household, as Jesus told him uh, in that passage. 
One, uh, another biblical example that I would encourage you to take in and meditate on, again, comes from John 12, and this is beautiful if you do this. Read John 12 and, and contrast Mary, Lazarus' sister, Mary, and the actions of Judas. Remember the ointment, how she broke that really expensive ointment and, and put it upon Jesus' feet? It was worth 300 denarii, and I believe that was the catalyst for Judas, where he's like, that's it, I'm done, I can't take any more. Uh, let, me, let me cash out before this thing ends, and he settles for 30 pieces of silver. I think that was the catalyst where he decided that day that he was going to betray Jesus to get something for all of his troubles falling around this man three years. But look at Mary. Where was her treasure? 300 denarii worth of ointment. She breaks it open. And you guys might know that, that ointment and perfume in those days, there was no screw-on cap. Right, It was just a, a, an enclosed glass vial. Once you broke it, that was it. You used it. Her, and that's because her treasure was not on this earth. And she was at the feet of where her treasure was, Jesus Christ. But Judas, no. His treasure was in wealth. It was in money. John even tells us that in the text, that he was all about money. And so comparing those two individuals in John 12 is a beautiful exercise of meditation. I encourage you to do it. And then finally, here's a great passage which comes from 1 John and really touches on so much of what we looked at today as we see the warning uh, of the Lord there. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world and the love of the Father is not in him, for all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and pride of life is not from the Father but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. What a great passage. You'll see there in verse 15, there's only two options, right? Not three. There's not a third option, which it seems like we're always wanting, right? To have a, uh, do the hokey pokey, have a foot on each side of the line. We can't. See, the Father is in us or not. And, and the answer to that has a lot to do with where our treasure is. And so I, I, I ask as we end here, to whom are you fully devoted? It's either the God of the Bible through Jesus Christ or it is the things of this world, whether it be money, position in life, power, uh, uh, jealousy, envy, the evil eye thing, whatever it might be, we need to answer the questions put before us by this passage and ultimately, ultimately answer the key question, who is my master? Who is my master? Today for the invitation, it's two-part. We're going to pray in regards to the sermon, and then we're going to transition into a time with the Lord's Supper. But the first thing I want us to do is pray, because if you're anything like me, this passage really gets you. It really hits you. It has definitely uh, been convicting me all week, and, and it's helped me in my life and my walk to assess where my heart is. And so I want to have a time uh, where we all bow our heads, we close our eyes, and I want to give you just a few seconds to confess anything that the Holy Spirit has uh, made apparent uh, through this passage this morning. And then I'll, I'll lead us in a time of, of confession as we also get our hearts ready uh, for the, the wonderful time of experiencing the gospel of Jesus Christ through the Lord's Supper. So let's pray.
Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We take it for granted that we have written copies in our possession. We even have copies on our electronic devices, and your word is so wonderful. Thank you, Lord. You did not leave us as orphans, but gave to us your Holy Spirit, God in us, so that we could understand and learn and grow and hear from you. Lord, as you have clearly pierced us with your word, your sword today, and expose motives and realities at the heart level, you've exposed idolatry, divided loyalties, between you, our Savior, and the things of this world that are fleeting and perishing, I, I pray that you would restore us, O oh Lord, not to where we have been, but where we've never been, a life fully devoted to you, a singularly devoted life. Make us whole, Lord God. Help us, free us from, from going back to the mire, going back to the pig slop. Let us stop being our worst enemy at times and to truly, truly devote ourselves to following you, trusting you, that, that the beatitudes that we started this sermon series with would be true of each and every one of you, each and every one of us, that, that we would be so focused on you and your glory, no longer caring what other people think, no longer held captive by other people's expect, expectations. But Lord, forgive us. Forgive us for the times that we have been more devoted to the things of this world than you. And help us to develop a habit of taking off and putting on so that this wouldn't happen again. Lord, help each and every one of us who are already saved and in Christ live the life devoted to you of human flourishing as Jesus would have us so clearly written. Let us accept the invitation, the invitation to the path of the wise. And help us to do that, Lord. And again, if there's anyone in here, I know there are, who don't know you, who haven't had that time of conversion, of initial repentance and faith, oh, Lord God, save them even today. Bring about the recognition and the repentance that is necessary for them to repent and believe and accept the gospel of Jesus Christ. Be with us now as we transition into this wonderful time of worshiping you through the Lord's Supper. And it's in your name that we pray. Amen. I see the gentlemen are already back there who are going to help, but uh, before they come up, I just want to uh, do what we call, we call this fencing the table, just let you know how we do the Lord's Supper here uh, at, the, at the Church of Blue Ridge. You guys can hold off, I'll, I'll call you up in a minute. Um, at, the, at, at the Church of Blue Ridge, again, this is the high time of worship for us, where we experience the gospel. We're reminded of what Christ did for us and his glorious sacrifice upon the cross. And, and what we practice, we call close communion. Not closed, but close communion. And what that means is, of course, primarily it's for members of the church, but also for anyone who is a born-again believer uh, who worships like we do, who are kind of in, in our, our camp and our theology. And what that is is what we call the memorial view of the Lord's Supper. There's nothing special in and of itself of the bread or the grape juice. There's no magic uh, there's no grace that we get from it per se, but it's, it's memorial. It's a, a way for us to remember what Jesus did and to worship him corporately as one body. And, of course, the guests 
who are here with our body today. And so all we really ask is if there's any doubt of your salvation or you know you're not a born-again follower of Christ, let the, let the plates pass and, and don't worry about it. Just observe and see what we're doing and allow your hearts to be open uh, for God to work in them as we celebrate this great time uh, together. You guys can go ahead and uh, start to uh, pass out the elements of worship. Now, uh, we talked about Judas here a moment ago, and I think it's, Judas, again, is a very important character for us. Uh, there's no doubt as to where his heart was when it came to the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's, I think it's very interesting, especially you see this in John's gospel, where Judas leaves the upper room before the Lord's Supper. Now, he was there for, for part of it, the foot washing, but he leaves. And so now, taking place in this time, this ceremony that Jesus outlines when he gives the instructions for the Lord's Supper, Judas isn't there. But those who treasured him in their heart, his true followers, his true disciples. Disciples. 